welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 332, and on today's podcast, I talk to Quentin Watt about his research into the forgotten stories of Midland railway employers who served in the Great War. Quint spoke to me from his home in the Black Country. I'm a little bit taller than Marcus. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, um, um, thank you, Jerry, and I would like to thank the, the Friends of the Western Front Association and the Friends in Cork for this invitation. Um, after three or four visits of Cork yes. delegations, maybe it was about right that finally someone from IPA visited uh, Cork again. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I won't be speaking in my uh, mother tongue, uh, which is Flemish. So it might be that sooner and then I'm uh, searching for the, the proper words. Uh, but as I always say when uh, talking in a, another language, I have little doubt that my English is still much better than your Flemish. So, <laughs> um, so I'm indeed from the windpipe of Britain, uh, Mark. I will remember that one. Um, but there are, as uh, Jerry has said, few places on the European continent that are as connected um, to Ireland's past as Ypres and the battlefields that surround uh, the city. Um, I won't too much focus on the military side during my talk, but I will explore traces of the Irish presence in and near Ypres in the First World War and what these, these could mean to us today. Um, in other words, what is the significance of Ypres to Ireland's history in war, in peace and in peacemaking. And I will rather jump from heel to heel in order to give a broad perspective. So it's rather an exploration um, than a proper paper, I would say. Um, and also the division in places, personalities, pilgrimages and projects is somewhat artificial. Um, places are connected to personalities, are connected to pilgrimages and are connected to projects. Um, so starting with places, well, I, I did a little bit of um, research, and well, that's my job, so <laughs> um, Irish-born soldiers died in Belgium from the very first day they were engaged in battle until the very last day of the war. Um, 17 Irish-born soldiers were killed on the 23rd of August 1914, including Lieutenant Maurice Dees, first person to be awarded a VC in the Great War. Um, he was from County Westmeath. Um, and there were five Irish-born um, soldiers killed in Belgium in, on the 11th of November 1918, including one William Looney from Cork. Um, you would find Irish in all divisions of the British Expeditionary Force, but also in many Canadian units. Um, I found 333 Irish-born casualties um, who uh, died in Belgium as a Canadian soldier, um, in the Australian, New Zealand forces, and also in the four um, American divisions who fought in Belgium in the First World War. But however, best known are the two divisions who were engaged, Irish divisions who were engaged on the Western Front, the 16th Irish Division and the 36th Ulster Division, who fought on two occasions side by side in Flanders and both met triumph and tragedy. 
And um, if we start with the 36th ulster division, I just picked out the uh, part of the explanation on Wikipedia. Um, well, we have an expression in Dutch. I don't know whether it exists in English, but you don't have to invent hot water. And that's a good example of, um, so I just took it from, um, I think it summarizes quite well. But of course, I will focus on the um, engagements in uh, Flanders, in Belgium, um, the Battle of Messina, the Battle of Langemark, which they did uh, side by side with the 16th uh, Irish Division. But then again, um, the Ulster Division came back in late 1918, well, mid-1918 and late-1918, Battles of the Least, that's the uh, northern part of the German Spring Offensive, sometimes called for Battle of Ypres, and then the Battle of Courtrai, which is, um, Courtrai is a city just east of Ypres, about 20 kilometers, 25 kilometers east of Ypres, um, so that's part in what we call the Liberation Offensive. Um, and then there's the 16th Irish Division, again, that's how it's summarized quite well on uh, Wikipedia. And the 16th Irish Division was mainly in Flanders 1917. And these two major engagements, as I said, side by side by uh, the Ulster Division. Um, I've included two propaganda posters, recruitment posters, where you clearly see the difference in um, what I found particularly interesting is, is also looking at the colors. Um, the embodiment of Ireland is wearing, so no green on the poster uh, intended for the Ulster Division and no orange in, in uh, the poster intended for um, the Irish Division. Um, I want to elaborate a little bit more on some unknown aspects, um, and this is a rather unknown aspect um, on the link between Courtrai, Courtrai in French, um, which is that city 25 kilometers east of Ypres, um, and um, Ulster, particularly Belfast. Now, there were already links before the war because um, Kortrijk and the river Lys, who runs through it, um, has always been a flax-producing town, and there were many commercial links between um, Belfast and Kortrijk. Um, and the fact that there is a street called Belfast Street dates from before the First World War, has nothing to do with the First World War. However, there's a very interesting connection, and quite lately, um, you can see the date of uh, unveiling. Well, they choose a location to do a connection with Ireland, so they took an Irish pub, and at the Irish pub, this plaque was unveiled last year. Um, there's a memorial, small memorial, in a village nearby, um, unveiled only in 2018. But I will particularly focus on um, the liberation of Kortrijk, 1617 of October 1918, um, or a bit earlier even. Um, and just a quote, which was a story told when they unveiled that plaque. On the 9th of the 15th of, to 16th of October, Lieutenant Adams, 2nd Battalion Irish Rifles, was sent into the city of Kortrijk with a reconnaissance mission. The officer knew where to go, as he had lived in the city before the war. He carried out his assignment so meticulously um, that he was late getting back to his unit. Meanwhile, the army command had already given the order to shell Kortrijk. On his return, the firing ceased, and with the lieutenant's instructions, it was decided to move into town, and this avoided a lot of civilian casualties. So it's all but right that um, this plaque was then unveiled. Um, there are many other episodes who are um, 
in my opinion, not uh, often enough highlighted. Um, like in um, the place where this, this was unveiled, um, the 36th Division was um, encountered German gas attacks, German gas attacks, uh, which not only killed quite a number of the soldiers, but also uh, several hundreds of civilian casualties, because that's really fighting. That's, that's, that's why we use the term in Flanders liberation offensive. Um, that fighting is taking place in towns where people are still living at that stage. But of course the area uh, most um, connected, most linked with the Irish presence in Flanders is the area just um, west of the village of Weitschate. Um, this street is the Weitschatestraat. What actually happened is you had the 16th Division attacking on the 7th of June 1917 north of this road. Um, so it was the divisional boundary and then the 36th was the division um, attacking to the south. Um, and there are many references to that Irish presence, where there's Irish House Cemetery. Um, you've got several of the craters of 7 June uh, 1917. There's one here, there's one there, there's one there. There's Lone Tree Cemetery and Spanbroek Molen uh, British Cemetery. Um, I will elaborate a bit more on that later on, because since a good three weeks, um, these two cemeteries are uh, part of um, UNESCO World Heritage um, List. And the two cemeteries entirely connected with the Irish presence um, over there uh, in 1917. And then, of course, and I'll elaborate a lot more on that later on as well, the island of um, Ireland uh, Peace Park, um, which is actually built not in a historically correct place because uh, it's um, built on the, the area that was conquered by the New Zealand uh, division um, in... Um, in 1917. However, it's not far from where the Irish fought and there are practical reasons. Uh, they were able to acquire the ground over there, which is a very practical uh, explanation. Um, the Island of Ireland Peace Park, which, which was unveiled in 1998, was actually a project, project initiated by a member of the Irish Parliament, uh, Paddy Hart, who together with the community activist uh, Glenn Barr from Northern Ireland established a Journey of Reconciliation Trust. The trust was broad-based, cross-border organization uh, made up of representatives from the main churches in Ireland, professional political uh, representatives and community leaders from both parts of the island. Um, and the tower and the park itself were constricted by youngsters from north and south. Some more views. This is Lone Tree Cemetery, which um, only has uh, headstones of um, Ulster Division men who were killed on or immediately after the 7th of June 1917. And um, this is the Weitschat Road, the village of Weitschat over there. Uh, this is the 16th Division, uh, Divisional Memorial. And in Flanders, some years, I think 10 or 15 years ago, these small posts, they are called the Irish posts, were unveiled, which has the divisional crest of the 16th division on one side of the road and the 36th division on um, the other side of the road. Um, that triumph, which it was, uh, Battle of Messines, came at a high cost. Um, 16th division, officially 27091 dead, the 36th division 2602 dead. But um, while triumphs have been commemorated in the landscape, this was much less the case for the tragedies. 
Um, the second and last time the two divisions fought side by side was during the Battle of Langemark, which is one of the phases of the Third Battle of Ypres, Battle of Passchendaele, um, between 16th and the 18th of August uh, 1917. So I looked up the casualty figures for the period between 16th and the 20th of August. Um, 2,804 dead in the 16th division, 3,026 dead in the 36th division. Um, strikingly corresponding figures, not only between the two divisions, but only also between the triumph, that is the Battle of Messines, and the tragedy, that is the Battle of Langemark. Um, as is often the case with um, actions that rather go wrong, um, this has not been commemorated on the spot until August 2017. It's only um, in August 2017, and mind you, just like the Irish Post, this, these are initiatives from local people. Um, it's only in, in August 2017 that this stone um, and this panel was erected. The blue plaque um, to Willie Doyle, come to him later on, was unveiled um, some years um, later. Now, I think it is important um, to, oops, um, to also give attention to um, the opinion of the Flemish population. Um, the Irish lived among the Flemish population. One of my criticism to a large part of military history, and certainly if, if you have the um, histories of a particular unit, quite often it seems like that unit is fighting against no one, with no one to the left, no one to the right, and an area where no one is living. So I think it's quite important to look at how the local Flemish population looked at the Irish. And I used the diary of Father van Walgem. Father van Walgem was a Catholic priest uh, living in Dekkebus and Renninghelst, uh, first villages inhabit still inhabited uh, after the front line. Um, his diary is um, considered officially designated by the Flemish government as a uh, piece of heritage of national importance, which means that we can't export it. Or, or So it's, it's really a very important diary. And this is the Flemish opinion of, uh, on the Irish, according to Father van Wallegem. Um, just three quotes from his diary. Feast day of St. Patrick in Westutter and Renningels, solemnly celebrated by the Irish soldiers. On that day, they all wear the shamrock in honor of their patron saint. Quite neutral, nothing very important. The second one, May 17, is much nicer, I think. Um, the chaplain who is staying here is an impetuous Irishman, Father Higgins. The kind of fellow who, by his boisterousness, does more harm to his own cause than good. A remark we are entitled to make after two and a half years is that the English chaplains are by no means as hard-working as our Flemish priests or the French chaplains. We didn't have a high opinion of the English clergy before the war, and it's even lower now. As a rule, the Irish are hardly any better. And this is a fat fellow Catholic, so it's quite interesting. They cancel their mass more readily than our priest their rosary. And then, the best soldiers here are the Leinsters from Ireland, and they are also the best Catholics, obviously. <laughs> um, Father Hurley says that his brigade lost 300 men last week just in the trenches without any attack, and that's during the Third Battle of Ypres. Um, just in the trenches, so... <laughs> um, but th there was an interest in Flanders in um, Ireland, just as in Ireland there was an interest in Flanders. Um, and it has mainly to do with Catholicism and nationalism. 
So Flemish nationalism, which was quite emerging at that period, um, in 1914 it wasn't really uh, a political movement, it was mostly a cultural movement, but it will become very political um, during, uh, during the war, uh, under the influence of Flemish soldiers in the Belgian army, um, who, well, the official language of the army was French, but the majority of the soldiers was Flemish and so on. Um, it's a very not complicated, but a long story, so I won't delve too deep into that. But the important thing is there was an interest uh, amongst these Flemish nationalists, in, uh, and not only amongst the nationalists uh, in Ireland, um, and also to a certain extent vice versa because of um, the Catholic uh, background. Um, one particular interesting person, for instance, is Joe English. Um, Joe English, who was born in Bruges, um, and this is quite interesting. There's kind of a personal connection because his family had a uh, an embroidery. Is that how you well, well there? Yeah. Embroidery opposite the place where my great grandfather had his bakery in the, the centre of Bruges. But Joe English, um, his father was Irish from Waterford. Um, he had a brother who went into the priesthood. Um, he became quite a prolific artist, um, seen as the most important um, uh, Flemish nationalist uh, artist. He was a soldier in the First World War, died in 1918 uh, of a disease, but he is mainly remembered for um, designing what in Flemish is called the Eros Honor Headstone, which is a headstone, and you can see that it has a Celtic cross, which there's no connection between Celtic crosses and, 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 and Flanders, but he designed this Celtic cross uh, to commemorate Flemish nationalist uh, soldiers who died in the Belgian army during the First World War and uh, the AVVVVK, if you would translate it, it's the abbreviation from all for Flanders, Flanders for Christ, so clearly Catholic and nationalist um, message. There's another um, connection between Ireland and Flanders and namely Ypres and that's the story of the Irish nuns. Um, the Irish nuns who settled in Ypres in um, 1682, um, Irish Benedictines, um, and they got important donations from Queen Mary of Modena um, and uh, King James II, and the convent flourished. Uh, the purpose of this abbey at Ypres was to provide an education um, and religious community for Irish women during uh, times of persecution in Ireland. And down through the centuries, the Abbey of the Irish Dames at Ypres, as it was called, attracted the daughters of Irish nobility, both as students and postulants, and they enjoyed the patronage of many influential Irish families. And you have broadly two categories of nuns. On the one hand, you had the Dames, also called choir nuns, who had been educated enough to be able to read and sing the office in Latin, and who had made a dowry, perhaps more importantly. Um, and on the other hand, you had the lay nuns um, who did the manual work. Um, it was also a closed convent, so those who entered it would, in principle, never leave the monastery again. Um, the building you see on the left, um, that's how it was rebuilt in the then current neo-Gothic style um, in the 1860s. And in 1914, the Irish ladies left Ypres uh, never to return. But there was a lot of myth-making attached to um, the presence of the Irish nuns in Ypres. Um, on St. Patrick's Day 1915, 
Um, the Weekly Freeman published this as a poster, um, which is actually nonsense. Well, apart from the flag, they had this flag, but the nuns had already left the convent, and the flag, they were never liberated or saved by the monster fusiliers. Um, so, apart from the flag, there's very little uh, truth um, in this. But that flag was a flag captured from English troops under the Duke of Marlborough in 1706 during the Battle of Ramey um, by Irish troops in the service of the French. So you see the symbolic connection attached to that flag. Um, in 1914, the community consisted of the Lady Abbess, the Prioress, eight dames, eight lay sisters and a novice, so it's a quite a small convent. Um, seven were Irish, three were English, one was from Luxembourg, four were German and the others were Belgian. And the German nuns were forced to leave the convent on the 7th of September 1914. And we've got the diary of two of the nuns. Um, well, we don't have them, but we know where they are and refused them. Um, diary of one of the nuns, Dame Placid, um, testifies of the growing panic, the short stay of the German troops in the city, um, which was on the 7th of October, so it's the anniversary of the only day the Germans occupied Ypres. Um, the arrival of the British and the growing difficulties in getting food. Um, but as it was a closed conference, so you had this traditional isolation, um, it was not easy for them to distinguish uh, rumours from truth. And that isolation would soon be broken um, forever. Um, on the 30th of October, De Placid was given the task to leave the convent um, and finding accommodation in nearby Poppering for the destitute elderly abbess and two elderly sisters, but a few days later it is decided that they would break the lock and leave their convent in Scheldt Ypres, never to return. Um, as I said, there was a lot of myth-making stories told, and that's the reason why as early as 1915, the Irish nuns at Ypres, an episode of the war was published. Um, it had been written mainly by Dame Mary Columban, um, by order of the prioress, because they hoped that the publication would connect the dots and provide an accurate account of what had happened to that small community. Because after all, the English-speaking nuns from Ypres were hot news um, in the UK and in Ireland, and not every article, as we have seen, was equally truthful. The introduction to their book was written by none other than John Redmond, um, MP, the Irish nationalist leader, whose niece, Dora Howard was part of the Irish community in Ypres as Dame Teresa. Um, and the 1915 book, still very interesting read, was completely based on recollections and notes of the various convent sisters. After leaving Belgium, the Irish nuns first spent two years at Alton Abbey in Staffordshire before settling in Ireland, initially at Magmine near Wexford, but then from 1920 at the picturesque Kylemore Abbey in Galway, and until this day, um, the nuns there keep several souvenirs originating from the Abbey in Ypres, including the flag from the Battle of Ramey. And in 2015, for the very first time, a delegation of the nuns of Caramel Abbey visited Ypres and a most modest memorial, um, that's about the size, a most modest memorial was attached to one of the houses standing on what was once the site of their monastery. Um, this is the house, and that dot over there is uh, the panel. But, after all, it's an important part of pre-war Ypres that ties Ypres to um, Irish history that was never 
reconstituted. Um, personalities, I will just uh, focus on four personalities and I will tell you the stories also as they feature in uh, my museum in, in Flanders Fields Museum. I have to start obviously with uh, Willie Redmond. Um, how do we present him in the museum? I'll just read it out. Although William Redmond was born in Grasendale, Liverpool, he came from a Catholic family in Wexford, Ireland. He was educated by Jesuits and worked as a cabin boy. In 1879, he enlisted in the Royal Irish Regiment. In the 1880s, he became very active as an Irish nationalist. From 1884, he was a member of Parliament for the Irish Parliamentary Party, led by his brother John, which sought to achieve Irish self-governance by parliamentary means. Many Irish people, nationalists and loyalists, fought in the war in the hope of furthering their cause. William went to the front with the 16th Irish Division. The Easter Rising in 1916 shocked him, but he advocated reconciliation as it was lived out at the front. After the Battle of the Somme, the division came to Belgium in October 1916. On the 7th of June 17, the two Irish divisions uh, fought side by side. After March urging, Major William Redmond, already aged 56, was allowed to join the attack on Weitschaten. He was almost immediately hit by shrapnel. He was taken to the back of the line by Private John Meek from Ulster, but died that afternoon in an Ulster Division 8 post, 100, run by 108 field ambulance, in Dranuta. At 6.30pm, 7th of June, his body was taken to the convent in Loka by an ambulance of the 16th Division, and there he was buried in the garden on the 8th of June, 1917. And Redmond's grave has ever since um, been um, a site of pilgrimage for uh, many visitors, and especially Irish visitors, to uh, Flanders. Um, at the end of April 1918, as you can see, could see here, um, Loker, oops, Loker was completely destroyed, hospice, so that's where um, the grave of Redmond was in the garden. Um, but the monastery was rebuilt after the war, just next to the ruins. Uh, Redmond's grave remains alone in the field, just outside Loker Hospice Cemetery. So here is Loker Hospice Cemetery. The hospice is more to the left. And then you've got Redmond's grave. Um, I did a walk there two weeks ago, and there was a strange remnant from the front uh, put there. It's a rusty rifle, who probably someone found it in the field and had deposited there. Not uncommon in Flanders. Francis Ledwich, uh, born in Slain, Cote Meath, and that's how we present him in the museum, wrote poems since he was a teenager, often about Irish nature and Celtic mythology. As a nationalist, he campaigned for the independence of Ireland. He initially opposed John Redmond's call for mainly Catholic nationalists to join the war in order to achieve home rule. Nevertheless, he volunteered for service in an Irish regiment of the British Army. Francis was at the front in Gallipoli, the Balkans, Arras and Ypres. After the crushed Easter Rising in Dublin in April 16, he felt cheated by his participation in the war. The idea of a firing squad dressed in the same British Army uniform as he himself wore, executing the rebels, was a moment of bitter paradox for him and inspired him to write an elegy, a lament for Thomas McDonagh. On the 31st of July 1917, the first day of the Third Battle of Ypres, the Irish nationalist and English-speaking poet Francis Ledwich was killed along with five friends at Carrefour des Halles in Boussingen near Ypres. A shell hit um, killed him during tea ration, a short rest over a cup of tea, while they were repairing a street. 
The casualties of the 1st Battalion Royal Irish Inniskilling Fusiliers were buried in the pit of a shell, so in the shell hole, um, of the shell that killed him. And in the summer of 1919, the bodies were exhumed and interned in the nearby Artillery Wood Cemetery. On the 31st of July 1998, a Ledwich monument was unveiled, unveiled in Puzzlestraat in Puzingen, bearing his poem Soliloquy. Um, and then later on, um, the, it, it's a track, it's a path. The path was named Ledwich's Path. Uh, it's not a proper street, but at least he has a path uh, named after him which is perhaps right for a more pastoral poet as he was. Um, I just included the panel that is to be found until this very day on the Ladwich Museum in Slane, uh, which states that he was killed in France in 1917. Um, well, we're quite used to be considered uh, France. The number of times I've seen Ypres France, uh, I can't tell you. So I can live with it. However... There's something very interesting regarding Ledwich. So that's his grave in uh, Artillery Woods. Um, part of his poem is to be found when you enter the island of Ireland Peace Park. Um, but there's very odd and very interesting about that quotation. And that is that actually the last sentence is missing. Um, by the way, you see that it says fifth in his killing fusiliers. That was his original battalion. So he moved to the first. Um, the last sentence, so the strove goes, um, well, I have to, a keen-edged sword soldier's heart is greater than a poet's art and greater than a poet's fame, a little grave that has no name. And the last sentence that was omitted is, whence honor turns away in shame, which completely changes the meaning of, uh, of the poem. Um, I've always wondered why and if it was deliberately and um, on internet I came across a comment from 2009 boldly stating uh, the British took away the last line to use the poem as propaganda, shame on them <laughs> um, but basically what it says that Ledwich knew that there would be no funeral or burial service for himself and the other soldiers and in the final lines of this poem he predicts so that, that little grave that has no name when someone turns away in shame um, it was indeed censored in many publications, not only on, on this stone. Um, and actually you could see it as a prediction of not only his own fate, but also the, fight, the fate of thousands of Irish men who uh, died in the First World War. It is extremely striking, I think, that it is not added on the island of Ireland Peace Park. Um, Willie Doyle, um, at this moment, doesn't feature in the museum, but we caught some very interesting stuff regarding him. Willie Doyle uh, was born in Dublin, 1873, um, became a Jesuit priest in 1907, he joined the BF as a chaplain first class. He was gassed in Luz. Um, he was quite brave, not only gassed in Luz, he got the military cross uh, during the Battle of the Somme. Um, he was attached to a battalion of the Dublin Fusiliers, and he went... Uh, missing in action while ministering on the 17th of August 1917. Posthumously, he was proposed for Victoria Cross and for uh, the Distinguished um, Service um, Order, but he was denied both. Um, his name today is on the Tankard Memorial to the Missing, so they never found his grave. But Willie Doyle was proposed for canonization in 1938. Um, he is still officially a candidate for sainthood uh, in um, and in August 2022, a Father Willie Doyle Association was established to petition the Catholic Church 
to introduce a course for canonization. I think the Vatican missed a huge opportunity during the centenary to have a, <laughs> a new saint uh, connected with the First World War. Um, but in our collection, we actually have a lot of these kind of prayer cards, both in English but also in Flemish. So he had quite a number of adepts and adherents um, in Flanders as well. Um, and even, don't ask me how true it is, but even some relics. So uh, we've got these two pieces um, it says, Peace of Shawl of Father Willie. So, yeah, kept as um, a relic. At one stage, um, the old lady, unfortunately, um, died 15 years ago. Um, Denise Dahl, who was a self-declared medium in Ypres, um, went to the press and said, I know where he is buried. Mm -hmm. And she went to uh, one of the Protese cemeteries, pointing out at the grave of an unknown soldier, stating, I feel that this is... Uh, Willie Doyle. It wasn't enough to convince the Walgreens Commission, though. <laughs> um, the only one of my four personalities who survived is James Lee. He's probably the least known of these personalities, but he is an important figure for Ypres, as he was town major from 1916 to mid-1918. And last but not least, he was born less than two kilometers from here, I think, in Ballenlock, Cork. Um, as a student, and this is how we present him in the museum, as a student, the Catholic Irishman James Lee excelled in the ancient language Celtic. In and out of school, he learned many more languages, such as Latin, French, Italian, Hindustani, Persian, Punjabi, and Pashto. His military career, 1891 to 1901, took him to South Africa and India. At the outbreak of the First World War, James Lee re-enlisted in the army at the age of 41. He became an adjutant in the 7th Battalion of the Duke of Cornwall Light Infantry, and after the Battle of Luz, he became town major of Ypres, as I said, from April 16 to April 1918. By the time Lee became town major, there were no longer any inhabitants. The last civilians had to leave the town in May 1915. Lee tried to save some art treasures from the rubble of St. Martin's Cathedral, and as a town commander, Lee regulated the affairs of the British troops in the deserted town. His headquarters were in the fortified Ypres prison. And together with his deputy, Dr. Margaret, he published a small guide for the many soldiers in Ypres, which was a completely unique thing, publishing a guidebook for the completely destroyed city that Ypres was in April uh, 1918. He was convinced, as you can read from this introduction of uh, that guidebook, uh, he was convinced in view of the Flemish national character that the town would be rebuilt, rebuilt. And of course, as a, um, a Flemish historian, uh, moreover specialized in reconstruction of Ypres, um, it's quite a remarkable, quite remarkable uh, prediction, if, in fact, of, of this uh, Irish um, town major. Um, and he moreover includes part of the Teundaglied, which is like the national anthem of Ypres. Jeugd, Ypres, Jeugd, and viert den bleden dag, which so he, he must really have studied the history of Ypres um, and parts of uh, the Flemish language. Um, that's him. Um, he actually, already before the First World War, had settled in Slough. Um, and um, after he was town major, um, he held the same post in Hasebroek and then later became commander of a demob camp, demobilization camp in Kortrijk. Um, he was foreign export manager of Horlicks. Um, so, and he died in Slow, uh, where he had settled. Pilgrimages. Now, the first of all, 
one very familiar to you, Jerry, uh, Dan, and some other Cork people, uh, the Munster Cross. The Munster Cross, which you can't see here, uh, because only the base was actually unveiled in, uh, on 7th of July 1924, that's over here, um, is actually the memorial that commemorates the fallen Irish from the province of Munster. Um, so the base is unveiled 7th of July 1924, quite early for a memorial, um, and St. Martin's Church in the background to the right was still completely in ruins. Um, Count Gerald O'Kelly, the Gallic first representative of the Irish Free State in Belgium, um, spoke at the unveiling, um, and it's dedicated to the Royal Munster Fusiliers and the casualties from Munster and from Cork. Among the audience, also the Mayor Burgomaster of Ypres and Brian Mahan, who was at the time a uh, member of the Irish Senate but had commanded the 10th Irish Division um, during the war. Um, the cross, which you see here, was mounted less than a month later. Um, and you can see how, well, this is some years later, how it must have been a very odd view that new Celtic cross uh, and the back, at the backdrop of the ruins of the cathedral, because this is the cathedral being built, and this is uh, 1928. It's quite a unique memorial um, for a number of reasons, because it's a memorial to a geographical unit, the province and its capital town. So it's not divisional or anything. Moreover, it's Irish, and thirdly, it is in the center of the city, which is quite rare, um, in the shadow of the cathedral, which means that it is an extremely familiar view for everybody who lives and works um, in Ypres, even those who have no interest whatsoever in the First World War or the history of the town do know about the Munster Cross or, as it is familiarly known, the Irish Cross. Uh, recently, the orientation of the cross has changed. I'll get back to that later on. Um, I've already talked about um, Willie Redmond's grave, which became a site of pilgrimage already during the war. Um, a last quote from Father von Wallagem, because he's one of the many who actually visited uh, the grave. He did so on the 11th of September 1917, and in his diary he writes, In the garden of local hospice is the grave of Major Redmond, who died in the Battle of Reitschaten. A lot of important people come to visit his grave and sign the visitor's book that the sisters have made in his honour. So, that's the first page. Next to the grave of Major Redmond, another burial place is prepared for the chaplain Father Doyle, an exemplary priest and a courageous man who died 14 days ago between Friesenberg and Sonnebeke, and whose body lies unburied in the front enemy line. This is the only quote we have that apparently there was a grave prepared for uh, Willie Doyle. Um, as I told you, this was a regular site, is still a regular site of pilgrimage for Irish visitors. Um, look at the date, 7 July 1924. I think this is the Cork delegation visiting uh, Redmond's grave after the unveiling of uh, the Munster Cross in um, Ypres. Um, there are many... Uh, this, this, it, it is probably still one of the most important Irish sites uh, near Ypres. Um, in 1967, 50th anniversary of the battle, there was a major Redmond commemoration with one, and I didn't find any more on him, one Major O'Keefe, who... Uh, served with him and spoke with him 15 minutes before his death, according to his own words. Um, and one interesting thing is that on the visitor's book you've seen here, uh, this one, has been in use until the 6th of June 2017. And that was full, and we started using a new one, which started 100 years 
after the death of uh, Willie um, Redmond. This is the unveiling of the 16th Irish Division Memorial in Weitschaten, so the official divisional memorial, um, 22nd of August 1926, quite late, um, unveiled by Major General, member of the Irish Senate and former commander of the 16th Division, Sir William Hickey, uh, in, pre in the presence of 50 Irish veterans of the division and family members. The UK was represented by Ambassador Graham, uh, but Count Gerald O'Kelly de Gallac, whom I've already mentioned, the first representative of the Free State in Brussels, uh, which you, well, you can't see him really, the, the photograph is not detailed enough, but he was, he was wearing his old British Army uniform with the Monstar um, for his presence in the BEF in the first uh, war year. But Count O'Kelly had previously, before this unveiling, made a fuss because not he, but the British ambassador was invited to the ceremony, um, which was actually completely appropriate at a diplomatic level because the Free State at the time was an explicit part of the British Empire, uh, which meant that the British ambassador had, and not the Irish representative had diplomatic precedence. But O'Kelly's uh, tendency to affirm uh, the independence of the Free State at an international level uh, had already previously led to a diplomatic argument uh, when two years previously he had unveiled um, the Munster Cross without any British or high Belgian representative present when the Munster Cross was unveiled. Now on this occasion, um, the hospice in Loker where Redmond is buried was also presented with um, the volumes of Ireland's memorial records and I'll get back later to that. And at the end of the ceremony, this is fun, I found this in the local newspapers, at the end of the ceremony, the Belgian military band played Tipperary, which was widely applauded by the uh, Irish uh, people who were present there. Now this, I came across this also quite recently, um, I thought it was a really fun thing to find, a visit of the Cork Choral Society in 1964, and they were touring Belgium then, July 1964, but the leader of the Cork Choral Society was Staff Hubruurs, who was um, a Belgian, Belgian-born musician, organist, composer, who had migrated to Ireland in 1924 and who settled in Cove. Um, and I am told that there is still an annual Staff Hubruurs Memorial Prize for Music at UCC. Um, uh, during the visit to Belgium, a performance of the choir was broadcasted on Flemish TV. They sung, yeah, this is also local newspapers can be, high, can be fun. They sang at the Sunday High Mass in High Mass in the Eber Cathedral, and the local journalist wrote that at first the singing was somewhat less firm. But this was explained as being a consequence of the emotion of being able to perform on the grounds where so many thousands of Irish had lost their lives. So nothing to do with the beer they had the day before. <laughs> um, and after the Mass, uh, there was a ceremony at the Munster Cross. Um, but then this extremely important moment for Irish history, um, the 11th of November 1998, uh, Mary McAleese and the Queen, who unveiled in the presence of, of the Belgian King, um, the Island of Ireland Memorial Park. It was the very first time in history that the two heads of state, of state uh, met. Um, so it is considered the beginning of the end of official amnesia. Um, I think it's quite important to stress that the island of Ireland Park has a tower, but unlike 
the Ulster Tower in the Somme. Um, it is then a tower that must recall the sacrifices of those from the entire island of Ireland, from all political and religious traditions who fought and died in the war. So it is um, as much um, a war memorial as a symbol of modern-day uh, reconciliation. And it has been used as such ever since. Uh, things have changed a lot. Uh, on the eve of the centenary, 2013, I think it was December, yeah, 19th of December, um, David Cameron and Enda Canny made a joint pilgrimage to Ypres. They were on their way to an EU summit in Brussels. This was at the time that the UK was still located in Europe. Um, and Canny and Cameron visited five sites, including Redmond's grave, and that was considered, generally considered the most remarkable part of their joint visit. Uh, that the British Prime Minister did pay a visit to this um, Irish nationalist uh, leader. I'll come to the final, end, uh, final stage of my presentation, the projects. Um, I've already mentioned a couple of times uh, Redmond's grave. Well, every 7th of June uh, 1970 at uh, 4.10 a.m., um, which was continental time, which was actually the hour the mines went up um, during the Battle of Messines. Well, British time, uh, Greenwich Mean Time, it was 3.10, so 4.10 continental time. And every year since 1997, if I remember well, um, this is the date and time that a group of dedicated locals, friends of in Flanders Fields Museum, friends of Ireland, gather at the Spanbroek Molen Krater, known as the Pool of Peace, to make a walk of three to four miles from the former front line all the way to Redmond's grave in Loker. Uh, the walk is interrupted by music, by poetry, by warm soup or gin, and it usually ends with a typical Irish breakfast, as you can see. Um, sometimes we are joined by Irish guests. Um, as I told you in 1998, a memorial was erected on the spot where Ledwich was killed. Uh, even today it is a site of pilgrimage for Irish visitors, as you can tell from the somewhat familiar faces on the left photograph. Um, that was when you were over in September. Um, in that same year, 1998, my colleague Pete, Pete Heelens, organized a Passchendaele Peace Concert dedicated to the life and works of Ledwich, featuring County Clare singer and musician Sean Tyrell. And a CD was published with this poetry and song in 1998, 1999. Um, in 2001, in the presence of the Burgomaster of Ypres, an exact copy of the Ypres Memorial, built in Flemish yellow bricks, was erected in the garden of the Ledwich Museum in Slane, thus correcting the panel on the museum facade, which states that he was killed in France. There were some smaller, minor projects as well uh, over the last 25 years. Um, from Hotschalk to Tipperary, Hotschalk is the Flemish name of the convent in Loker where Redmond is uh, buried. Um, while Flemish bricks were used in the Ledwich Memorial in Slane, Irish stone, yeah, Irish stone was used for building an Irish wall in Loker in the front garden of the reconstructed hospice. Um, the stones were leftovers from the tower uh, in the island of Ireland Peace Park. And it was built as a souvenir of the fraternization of Flemish and Irish, of both the Republic and Northern Ireland, youngsters in the period of building the park. I was also young then. I remember them in the Ypres pubs. Uh, it's something you, you do not forget. <laughs> um, and ten years later, another sculpture was created on the other side of the loan. 
uh, of the lawn. Uh, I have no other hands than yours. Um, it's the 10th anniversary of the unveiling of the Island of Ireland Peace Park and a group of 20 youngsters, 10 Flemish, 10 Irish, five from the Republic, five from Northern Ireland, spent three days together during a reenactment project. And the hands, interesting enough, the hands are made from a piece of the Ipa ruins. Um, in 2010, we had an apple tree for Ledwich, uh, which was a day dedicated to uh, the Irish presence in Flanders, when an apple tree from a very special orchard in County Meath Island was planted in Flanders. It was the orchard that had actually inspired uh, Francis Ledwich, and so it was a very interesting idea, very symbolic idea, to plant one of the apple trees from that orchard um, in, next to the place where he had um, lost his life. Um, planting the tree was the final stage in a full day on the trail of the Irish presence in Flanders. And as you can tell again from some of the photos, it was the opportunity for celebrating Irish-Flemish friendship in style. The Poet's Rest. What a name for a, a whiskey. Uh, also, well, what I consider a minor project, but still symbolically important, um, the greening of the cloth hall and some other events in 2017. Um, this from 17 to 24th of March, on the request of the Irish Embassy in Brussels, the cloth hall in Ypres was part of a worldwide project of greening, um, so which involved important monuments all over the world, uh, with a link to um, Ireland. Um, at that year, we also had a large project, 1917 Total War in Flanders, um, and there was an exhibition devoted to the Irish contribution in the war in Belgium um, in the church in Camel, so one of the villages near Ypres, in uh, the summertime. Um, and it was also the year when the Friends of the Museum visited Ireland, including um, Cork. 2017 was also the start of a project called Memorial Chairs, one part of the project was um, the artist-in-residence of in Flanders Fields Museum that year. Uh, Val Carmen had a project where chairs from the Passchendaele Church were integrated in one of her works of art and it travelled around. And it has also been on display in Belfast, in Dublin. I don't know if it was in other places. But another part of the project was uh, bringing together a chair from all countries which had subjects who died in Flanders during the First World War. Um, there are 125 countries of whom we know that people came from to die in Flanders. And the idea was, well, they left an empty chair at home, so let's bring chairs from all over the world. Um, and the Irish chair was actually given to us and sent to us by uh, Dermot uh, Bolger, um, the not really unknown uh, poet and um, novelist. And his son was... Um, also one of the students involved in an ongoing project which started also in that year um, which is updating the museum's name list and the list of Ireland's memorial records. So something more on the Ireland's memorial records. Um, this is the cabin which is on display in the museum and that's how uh, one volume and one page of these Ireland's memorial records mean uh, are. Um, so the city of Ypres owns a copy that's actually the copy that was given by Hickey to the convent in Locker. Uh, but when the convent in Locker went over or was became administered by the city of Ypres, 
that's how it ended up in the city of Ypres and finally in our museum. Um, the names of the fallen Irish soldiers in the First World War are listed in eight large and beautifully illustrated books. Only a hundred copies were made, of whom we have located 35 so far. Um, and in this case, Irish means Irish-born soldiers who served in the British Army and non-Irish-born soldiers who served in the Irish regiments of the army. Now, it's, high, it's a highly political project. Um, it was initiated by Field Marshal Sir John French, uh, not only first commander of the British Expeditionary Force in 1914-15, uh, but he was Lord Lieutenant and General Governor of Ireland from 1919 to 1922. Um, the approximately 50,000 fallen had to demonstrate the great contribution of Ireland to the recent military history of the British Empire at a time where uh, revolt and civil war threatened to tear off that part of the Irish island from the British fatherlands forever. But there are many mistakes and many missing links. And ever since 19, uh, 2017, um, the Irish Embassy, the Irish Department of Arts, uh, Heritage and the Geld Act, and initially also Google Europe, um, sponsor the visit and internship of um, Irish students uh, to IPA, where they stay about a month, and they research some of the names in the uh, island's memorial records, and they're included in the names list, which is the inclusive casualty database of in Flanders Fields Museum, to correct the data, to add data, to do genealogical research, and make their stories more real. Um, make them more people of, of, of life and blood. Um, the names list, it's a, a very important part of the names list project, and that names list project, just want to elaborate very shortly on that. I'm nearly finished, Jerry, no panic. Um, the name list is, as I said, the inclusive list of all casualties whose death is due to the First World War in Belgium. The name list contains both soldiers, irrespective of nationality, and civilians, so one-time friends and former foes, Belgians who passed away in their own country or abroad or were fatally wounded to die elsewhere later. So in total, in total we're talking about 600,000 casualties. Now it's quite unique because it's the first time in history that such an inclusive dead register has been drawn up. And the Wargaze Commission commemorates the British military dead. You've got French databases, you've got German databases, but this is the idea. Let's have them all um, integrated. And the last project I'll briefly focus on, no, former, um, is 100 years of the Munster Cross. This year, yesterday we met the mayor, um, the town council, city council of uh, Cork has agreed to sponsor two benches and um, plantation that will remind the visitors of Ireland to, um, well, let's say, adorn the space uh, next to the uh, Munster Cross and um, we will have the visit of an official delegation uh, to IPA uh, later, later this year. And then I've already mentioned it briefly, um, just some weeks ago, UNESCO World Heritage status for, amongst other sites, the Island of Ireland Peace Park, uh, which I think is highly important because um, I, I was involved in the whole process and why has a selection of the memorial sites of the First World War on the Western Front be designated UNESCO World Heritage is there's a historical reason because the cemeteries and memorial of the, uh, on the Western Front represent the final stage 
from mass commemoration of soldiers to individual commemoration of soldiers, but also because the um, memorial sites on the Western Front have demonstrated their capacity to organize international meeting um, over all the years, and because they incite to, um, they are used in education for peace, peacemaking and tolerance, and I think the island of Ireland Peace Park is, is the best example in that. Now, one final thought. I'm rather exhausted. <laughs> one final thought. Uh, what we see, especially also in Ireland and regarding the, um, the Irish presence during the First World War, history can divide. This is a photograph I've taken on the Shankill Road some years ago where the Menin Gate is celebrated as a symbol for um, Ulster. But history has also the potential to unite. And I think the examples of uh, the Irish presence near Ypres is the clearest demonstration of this. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>